poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Well, hello there, my friend, and welcome to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. And today's guest on CPG is a member of the Poker Hall of Fame, former owner of Card Player Magazine, early investor in Party Poker, and was a major driving force behind the World Poker Tour coming to reality, the amazing Linda Johnson. It isn't hyperbole to say that Linda has been one of the most influential figures in the world of poker for at least the past 30 years as both a pioneer and visionary. As a pioneer, she planted the seeds for poker's exponential growth by forcing poker rooms to adopt stronger rules regarding atrocious behavior. As a visionary, she instantly recognized the potential for bringing poker mainstream when Adam Pliska pitched her and Mike Sexton on the idea of the whole card cam. Before you dive into today's conversation with Linda Johnson, for those of you who have been listening to Chasing Poker Greatness from the beginning, you might remember one of my early questions. When you think of greatness in the world of poker, who's the first person that comes to mind? I stopped asking it because it quickly became obvious 90% of my guests were just going to answer Doyle Brunson or Phil Ivey, but as I was sitting here thinking of what to say in this intro, it dawned on me that if I were asked that question in the present moment, my immediate, most honest answer would be Linda Johnson. Many moons ago, she fell in love with a beautiful card game that existed in a world that wasn't very kind to her. Instead of accepting this reality or finding a new game to love, Linda invested every ounce of her life force rising up to meet the challenges and pave the way for the poker world as we now know it. For that, I personally owe her a debt I can never repay, and my only hope is that the next generation of poker players has half of her resolve and willpower so that we can continue fighting the good fight Linda began many years ago, showing the outside world why the game of poker is worthy of both love and aspiration. So now, without any further ado, I bring to you my conversation with Poker Hall of Famer, Linda Johnson. Linda? Welcome to Chasing Poker Greatness. How are you doing? I'm having a great time. I'm living life, uh, living the dream, Brad. Living the dream. What does living the dream look like for you these days? Well, it looks like uh, playing a little bit of online poker, playing a little bit of uh, poker in the casinos and doing a lot of traveling and cruising and, uh, you know, evenings with friends. And there used to be a time when all I wanted to do was play poker. And if I didn't get to play 16 hours a day, I wasn't happy, but now my life has kind of taken a balance and uh, I enjoy my friends and activities and theater. So as I said, living the dream. Living the dream. You're located in Vegas. I correct? Am. I've been here for 41 years now. Whew. I'm sure you've seen some things. You've seen it change just a little bit over the past 41 years. Absolutely. I used to fly in from Los Angeles and, you know, poof, you're there. And now, you know, you can see for miles and miles and miles, Las Vegas has grown so much. We have over 2 million people here now. Whew, that's a lot of people, actually. I didn't yeah, even realize. When I moved here, it was 180,000, maybe. So it's 10x. Yes. 10x. Well, let's start at the very beginning, back when Vegas was 180K people. 
or back when you were traveling from LA to Vegas. Uh, let's talk about your poker story, how you got involved in the business of playing cards in the first place. Okay. You know, a lot of my peers who play poker for a living uh, played their whole life. They started young. I did not. I was 21 and I started playing blackjack. And my father, who um, made some extra income, he was, he was military, but he made some extra income playing poker. So he understood about poker and he told me, if you're going to gamble, you need to play against other people, not against the house. And he recommended that I learn how to play poker. So at the age of 21, I went to the bookstore. I think there was two or three books at that time, not like the thousands that there are today. And I bought myself a book and I started playing with the guys at work. I was working at the post office. And then pretty soon they didn't want me playing with them because I was winning. So I also lived in Southern California and we had Gardena as a card room there. Uh, the town of Gardena had five card rooms. And uh, back then they only played draw poker, draw high and draw low. But I was going there. And then on the weekends, I would come to Las Vegas and um, see how I did. And in 1980, I entered the World Series of Poker for the first time. I entered the ladies event. And I decided if I did well, I was going to give up my job. I had a great job at the post office. I was a level 17. I was first up to be a postmaster in my area. But um, I fell in love with the game of poker. And I came in fifth that year. Now, back in 1980, they only paid three places. And uh, so I didn't make the money, but it gave me the confidence to go and give my two weeks notice. And Why? Why so so quick on the draw? And I'm not exactly sure what a postmaster is. Could you tell me like what that means as it relates to your career? Yes. Um, I would have been in charge of like um, 16 different cities in my area. And I would have been in charge of the post office and running it and, uh, you know, trying to make money for them. And uh, I always say, if I hadn't done that, I would probably be postmaster general today and stamps would be $2 a piece. <laughs> <laughs> well, lucky for the poker world, you decided to um, quit the post office. And lucky, for me too. lucky, lucky for you too. Uh, when you entered the ladies event in 1980, at the risk of violating social protocol, um, how old were you? How long had you been in the poker world at that time? In 1980, I was 27. And uh, I had been playing since I was 21. And, you know, I, I say that everyone has a niche somewhere. Like, I don't have skills when it comes to creativity and drawing and singing and things like that. But from the beginning, poker was my niche. I just fell in love with it. Um, I, you know, I couldn't get enough of poker. I was totally obsessed with it. And from the beginning, I was a winning player. I mean, I, it was just my thing. Why, why do you think you had this niche? I mean, like growing up... Uh, did you love playing games, solving puzzles? Where do you think that talent or skill was cultivated or came from? Yeah, I was very competitive growing up, um, brother and sister, and we all competed in sports and, and we played a lot of games at home, you know, things like Monopoly and, um, you know, board games back then, not the stuff that they have nowadays, Wii and stuff. I have no clue what that is. I'm very technologically challenged, but um, I, I was just very competitive from the beginning. And it's funny because the guys at work, you know, I lost the first two sessions and they were happy to have me play. But after that, I started winning and it's like, oh, no, we can't play with you anymore. <laughs> you got kicked out of your, your first private game okay, at, yeah. at, the, at the post office. Um, how, what was it like in 1980 as a female playing cards or playing poker? Because I, you know, I have an 
image of that time in my head, but that was three years before I existed on the planet. So, um, you know, could you talk about that? Absolutely. It was a total nightmare back then. And I mean nightmare. It was a jungle. Um, the games were um, very mean-spirited. I mean, players were abusive, and especially towards women, because there were very few women. Uh, a lot of times I would be the only woman playing poker, and there were only a few women poker dealers back then as well. Um, you know, the most there would ever be is maybe three women in the card room with uh, 15 tables or more. And so the men um, did not welcome women into their man cave. Poker was their man cave, and they wanted to keep women out. So you had to have a very thick skin. Um, I never put up with a lot of crap from them. And so, you know, they kind of backed down with me, but I noticed other women that would come in if they were at all timid, uh, it would be very difficult for them. Give me a story of you scaring off one of these, these old, uh, 1980 poker players that inhabited the poker rooms. Well, I mean, they, they would call you names. Literally there was no protection from the card room, uh, unlike today. And I remember the first tournament I ever entered, they were, when I entered it, the, the management was like, oh, honey, if you win, we're going to give you a free buy-in for life and this and that. And it, you know, the men were kind of friendly until we got to the final table. And then on break, it was nine of them trying to figure out how to beat me. And it just was um, a very miserable. Plus, everybody smoked back then, too. And they would deliberately blow smoke in your face. I mean, it was, it was horrible. Wow, that does sound atrocious. I can't imagine <laughs> blowing smoke in people's faces. Wow. Yeah, yeah it wasn't until the like, late 90s that we got rid of smoke in the card room. We had a big campaign against it. And um, there was a gentleman named Cass Casey Castle, and he was very anti-smoke. And he got some of us involved, and we started bugging the card room managers and saying, you know, how unacceptable it was to have to sit next to a smoker in a tournament for eight hours. You know, in a live game, if you wanted to, you could always move but you know in a tournament it was really unfair yeah i've played my fair share of home games um living in states and places that don't have card rooms and i've played in a lot of them that allow smoking indoors and it's like <laughs> you can't really go anywhere you can't really do very much it's uh you know it, i guess it, it is what it is when you have limited options and you want the camaraderie and are like bored of playing online you just kind of have to have to deal with it yes yeah, but you know what I would do is if somebody would blow smoke in my face, I kind of leaned their way and coughed, and you know, pretty soon <laughs> you, know, you had to you had to take drastic measures to to uh, counterattack the, the players. They were just so mean back then. Yeah, you got to fight fire with fire. Did that get any better over time as your poker career progressed? Absolutely, it did. I mean, today, you know, I always say that back in the '80s, I would not have wanted my mom to go into a poker room. But today, things are much different. I mean, and players are much better protected. And I think um, that's one thing that I'm kind of proud of is um, after I bought the Card Player magazine in the mid-90s, I, I went to the heads of the World Series at that time. And I said, listen, um, abuse is poker's dirty little secret. And I said, I have power of the pen now. And if you don't do something about it, I'm going to start writing about it because you know, it's just not right. And I said, you want to grow the field, you want more women to come in and play. And if they're treated like this, it's not going to happen. So that year is when they uh, instigated the penalties, you know, for abuse in, in, in tournaments and in live games, you know, up until then, nobody would kick you out, nobody would say anything. But I'm kind of proud of the part that I played in that. It was kind of blackmail, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's a black, it's just like a threat. Um, you better clean up your act or we're going to start reporting on this. They did, and it has gotten much, much better. 
Tell me, let's go back because that was kind of a major event that we, we just kind of skipped into you buying card player magazine. Tell me from, you know, 1980 to that moment in time, what had you been up to in the poker world? And then what were the circumstances that led to you buying card player? I lived and breathed poker. I loved it so much and I played all the time, but after 12 years of playing professionally, um, the last few years of, of doing nothing but playing poker, you know, 60 hours a week, I, I started feeling like, you know, what's my life all about? All I'm doing right now is taking money from people. And I just felt this need that I needed to give something back. And so they ha- had the very first ever uh, card player cruise in 1992. And I went on that as a poker player with with no design. You know, I didn't know how to run a magazine or anything else, but I had so much fun on that cruise. I was talking with a couple of my fellow poker players on the day we were getting off the ship and we decided we wanted to get involved and never miss another cruise. And we, uh, so I thought, man, if I could somehow get involved with the magazine, at least I would be giving something back to this industry that I love so much. So um, three of us, uh, Denny Axel, Scott Rogers, and I went to the uh, owners of Card Player Magazine and told them we wanted to get involved. And they were- Who were the owners back then? Uh, June, June and Phil Field. But they were elderly. They were like in, uh, he, he was 75 maybe, and she was in her 70s. And they had been working really hard. And to our surprise, um, you know, what we countered them was, you know, how can we get involved and help you guys? And they said, well, you can buy the magazine. <laughs> so here we are, three professional mag- uh, poker players. And we didn't have the money to buy the magazine, but we said, let's do it. You know, so we went to a venture capitalist. We borrowed the money. We put in the sweat equity. <laughs> Hold on. Who, who's going to, who, what venture capitalist did you know that just like, oh, you poker players, let's give you some money so that you can run this, uh, this publication. A wonderful woman named Debbie Stone, and she loved poker as well. So um, this did not fit her normal uh, investing profile, but she decided, well, what the heck? I've got three kids here who are going to, you know, put in their sweat equity um, we paid 210000 for it in uh, 1992, which is, you know, a lot of money back then and still is. But, um, you know, the value in 92, it was probably be like a million dollars now that, that she loaned us. And um, the first year we made $2,500 profit after, you know, getting paid and stuff. And the magazine was black and white newsprint. And my partners decided that we needed to take a big gamble and turn this into a big glossy magazine in order to attract more card rooms that didn't want to advertise in a rag, right? And so um, I remember we had a vote and we had an interesting rule since there were three of us who owned the magazine, all equal partners. If one person was adamant and the other two people were kind of like, well, I don't think I want this, the adamant could outrule two of them. But on this one, everybody was adamant. And so the two of them, my problem was, I said, look, we made 2500 last year. If we go glossy, this is going to increase our print bill by $100,000 a year. We just don't have the money. Well, I had to eat crow because they were right. And once we went glossy, I did get outvoted, so we went glossy. And then all of a sudden, all these big card rooms, you know, um, from California and from the East Coast, they wanted to be in a, a nice publication. So uh, that's, how, that's how card players started to grow. Plus, card rooms were opening up. Our timing was perfect. Cardrooms were opening up everywhere. When we first bought the magazine, it uh, poker was only legal on the West Coast in Oregon, Washington, and California. 
And then immediately Atlantic City opened up and then the South opened up and, you know, card rooms just started growing everywhere. So our timing was perfect. Tell me about that first year, uh, putting in your sweat equity, making $2,000. How did it feel doing something different than being a full-time poker player running your own business? Well, luckily the fields, we had an agreement with them that they would stay on for six months and train us. And that was really important because we were poker players who did not know anything about running a, a business. I, you know, I was doing the editing. Um, you know, I didn't have any formal training as an editor, but I was pretty good at English. So I would edit. One of us did sales and one did the finances. And, you know, the three of us, you know, we kind of have an expression, fake it till you make it. And that's what we did. And uh, before, you know, in the first six months, we were like sponges. We absorbed everything they could teach us. And then uh, we were on our way after they left and, and we became very successful in the magazine. I don't, how long did y'all end up owning the magazine? When did you sell it to the Shulmans? Um, from 1993 to the year 2000. We sold it in 2000. Um, when we sold it, it was a, a booming. It was 132 pages, but we had a lot of internet ads, you know, and unfortunately, um, you know, Black Friday happened and the, uh, they weren't allowed to advertise anymore. There was no reason to advertise since we couldn't have all these websites in the United States. Did you say... You sold in the year 2000 or did you say 2010, 2000, 2000. Yeah. Yeah. So black Friday was like 11 years after that. I mean, they got, they got the moneymaker boom and, and all of that. So I think they ended up doing quite okay. They did. did, And, you know, and and it was a beautiful magazine and it still is, you know, it's a little bit thinner these days, but um, the Shulmans have taken good care of it. I always say that uh, June and, and Phil gave birth to the baby. We raised the baby to adulthood. And then uh, now the Shulmans have taken it from there and, you know, made it a mature uh, magazine. That's, that's really great. And do you have any, uh, any regret, I guess, after poker boomed in the mid 2000s, you were like, wow, like we, we sold. And then three years later, four years later, it went like, it just skyrocketed in popularity. You know, when I'm done with something, I have no regrets. I could not even imagine what was going to happen to my life because I was so obsessed with the magazine and it was taking, you know, 80 hours of, uh, of my time a week. I was, I would, when I wanted to play poker, I would have to edit at the table while I was playing poker. And, um, so, so, but when, when I walked away from it and sold it, I just never looked back and I never missed it as much as I loved it, you know, and it's the same thing with a lot of things in my life. When I'm done, I'm done. And I don't look back. I've sold a lot of houses that, you know, if I'd kept them, they would be worth uh, millions. I, um, one, I guess I have one big regret. Uh, I used to own part of party poker and, um, you know, we, I, when they were going to go public, I had the choice of either selling my stock or moving out of the country. And I sold my stock for pennies on the dollar. Um, you know, and then it went public for $9 billion, but I guess I kind of regret that one. <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, yeah. to be I fair sure though. 400 million or something. Oh my goodness gracious. Yeah. yeah I guess that's it. That's an easy one to have a regret over. Yeah. Um, quite a roller coaster ride though, with party poker going public and then UIGEA in 2005 or 2006. So, you know, there's, it, there was upside, but there was also some downside too. There would have been a lot of downside. You know, I would not have been able to sleep at night worrying that the DOJ was going to come knocking on my door. I would have had to move out of the United States, which I would never want to do. So you know, there would have been a lot giving up for money. And, and the bottom line is, you know, I, 
my shares were worth enough that, uh, you know, I'm comfortable now. And um, so I, I really don't regret it because I would not have wanted to leave here and, and move away. And, and but the stress of not knowing, you know, what was going to happen, uh, you know, when, when you were going to get uh, in trouble with the law and everything. And indeed, you know, the, the DOJ was after them all and they all had to make settlements. And, you know, it took years of their life in court and stuff. And I wouldn't have wanted that even for the money. Yeah. I mean, uh, Isai just settled recently, I think, with the DOJ so that he could come back to the United States. Like, that's how long that, that whole ordeal's been been right. going on. Peace of mind is worth a lot. It is, for sure. What brought you to selling Card Player, to being like, well, I'm, I'm done with this, I'm ready to move on to the next stage of my life? I just... When I sold Card Player, I sold the magazine, but I kept the cruise business because back when I owned Card Player Magazine, Card Player Cruises was part of it. And it was the cruise business that I enjoyed the most. Um, the magazine was a lot of work. I mean, a lot. And constantly, every two weeks, you had to produce 132 pages and you had to get all your writers and all your ads. And I mean, it was a lot of work, whereas the Card Player Cruises was a lot of fun. I got to go on cruises and have a good time. So when I did sell the magazine, uh, we separated the business. I did not sell the cruise business with it. And that's why we have Card Player Cruises today. We have the same name, even though they're not affiliated. Uh, it was just time to move on and stop working so hard. And, um, you know, we made a lot of money. Uh, we bought it for 210000 We sold it for a lot more than that. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a greedy person. I was just uh, happy with, with everything that happened. Yeah, it's funny. I actually didn't know that Card Player Cruises was separate from Card Player the magazine until this very moment that you said that. Um, and, I, you know, are you sure that it was a lot of trouble uh, wrangling poker players to make sure they meet deadlines and poker riders every other week? Because, I, I mean, it seems like they would just have it all, like on time every, every which way you turn, right? LOL, right. <laughs> it, it definitely You know, and then when they get it in, I'd have to get my red pen out because they're poker players, they're not writers, and the page would bleed with the edits. And yeah, <laughs> the deadlines, as you said, were, were difficult to get. It was, I, did, I did it for seven years and it was fun and I loved it, but um, I never looked back once I left it because the cruise business is really the fun part of it. So tell me, after you know you sold Card Player and all you all you have is Card Player Cruises, you know what what was next in your career? What you have your eyes set on? World Poker Tour. Um, if I had kept the magazine, I would have not been involved with the World Poker Tour, and uh, so I was really happy about that. Mike Sexton and I were in uh, a rainforest in Costa Rica, and Steve Lipskin said, "Can I meet with you?" So he flew down to meet us in this rainforest. And he talked about the idea of setting up a, uh, a poker tour. And he explained about having the lipstick camera. And this we knew would really make things great. And uh, so he needed $3 million to get this going. This was right around two, 2000, 2001, maybe. And he asked Mike and I if we could come up with financing. And we said, well, we know a few people that might be able to, um, you know, come up with it. So as soon as we got back to the United States, we set up a meeting with Lyle Berman. And we went to his beautiful penthouse here in Las Vegas, and um, we asked him for the money. And he said, well, he said, if I have a chance to 10 times my money, I'll do it. He said, I'd throw $3 million over the fence if I had a shot to get $10 million back. I mean, 10 times that back. And um, so we said, well, we, we think this is going to give you that opportunity. 
And uh, he gave us a challenge. He said, okay, you've got uh, six months to come up with uh, eight properties that will each pay uh, $50,000 to have World Poker Tour come to their place. And I said, done deal. And within a week, I, I had called all my friends that I knew through the card player magazine, uh, all the card room managers that I had relationships with, and I talked them into uh, giving the World Poker Tour a shot at it. Kathy Raymond was the first one to sign up. Doug Dalton, uh, Kathy was at Foxwoods. They were the first one to sign up. And Doug Dalton uh, at Bellagio signed up. And once I had the two of them and, and their reputations behind it, it was easy to get the other six. And we actually came up with like 12 within a week or two. And so the <laughs> Pokemon tour was on. That's how it started. So I was lucky. Uh, the first, um, obviously the studio announcer, the first six years, and um, had wonderful experiences. And, and Mike Sexton um, got his job as the one of the commentators. That's how it started. So tell me about being in a rainforest with Mike Sexton, because that is a pretty random thing. You're just in a rainforest and you have this meeting about the WVT. Yeah, um, we were just on a vacation down there. Um, you know, Mike Sexton is like the greatest guy ever. I, I miss him tremendously. It was over a year ago that he passed away. But, you know, when people used to say to me, who's who's the your favorite poker player? You know, it would always be Mike. He was wonderful. And during the six years that I traveled with the World Poker Tour, you know, obviously we were on airplanes a lot. We were in, um, you know, airports. And, and whenever anybody would come up to Mike, and ask for a picture or an autograph, he would make that person feel like they were the only person on this earth. He would look them in the eye and thank them for asking for it and smile with them and make sure the picture turned out right. I mean, he is just a magnificent man and it was so much fun uh, to work with him. Now, um, Mike and I started our relationship back in, in the eighties, we met playing poker. And then he was my first hire once I bought the card player magazine, Mike was a poker player and, um, and I asked him to write, he won a tournament at the Four Queens, and I asked him to write about it. And that led to me asking him to uh, be a columnist. And from there, you know, he got exposure to the poker world. And from there, he got involved with party poker. But Mike is a guy who never forgot. Who, you know, a lot of people forget how they started. Mike never did. And he always um, recognized me. And we were, like, really good friends. I dated his brother for a while. And, you know, so we had this this wonderful relationship. And and we were just happened to be on vacation in uh, Costa Rica, and that's how it started. Ah, that's a that's a great story. And you know, you, you mentioned that you were the you were the live announcer for WPT, right? And Mike was the commentator. Yes, I was the studio announcer, um, and I got to stand behind the table, and then I would announce the live action, and then it would go to Mike and Vince, and they would do the commentating, but. Uh, six years on the World Poker Tour was amazing. I, I got to travel the world. We had stops in Aruba and we had stops in Paris and uh, Costa Rica and, and, you know, lots of stops in the United States. And the, the uh, World Poker Tour truly is a family. I've never worked with a better group of people. Um, lots of cohesiveness, you know, because you're together traveling all the time. Uh, it was a wonderful experience. Lots of funny moments, lots of scary moments. I think the scariest moment ever on the World Poker Tour was in Costa Rica. Back in the beginning, when the World Poker Tour first started, we didn't have the Royal Flush Girls. I, we didn't have them till the year after I left because I wasn't really too keen on the idea of having the Royal Flush Girls. So uh, for our money presentations, each property would um, 
figure out a unique unique way to bring out the money. You know, now the Royal Flush Girls bring it out, but back then each property did. And so in Costa Rica, their um, national product is uh, is a, a like a flower cart or wagon kind of thing. And so they decided to bring the money out and have six oxen bring it into the arena, and then it would be in this cart. And so I went out to look at these oxen. These things weighed like 2,000 pounds a piece. And there were all these guards around with shotguns. And, and you know, I could hear them snorting. And, and they were like, you know, they just wanted to, to go. And I was like, oh, my God, we're going to bring them into this small <laughs> area. And if they decide to stampede, everybody, I mean, this could be horrible, you know. The and end of the W, the yeah. end of the WPT yeah. by stampeding. <laughs> I mean, I mean, they they were like their hooves were they kept you know like they wanted to run and everything, and and stampede. And I thought this is not a good idea. But uh, apparently, they were so excited because they wanted to prance around the arena. And so once they got <laughs> in there, they were as docile as could be, and it was a beautiful presentation. But that was, I think, my scariest moment ever. <laughs> Yeah, they were, um, you know, they just had some anxiety. They had some nervous, they had some nerves about their performance. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> uh, performance anxiety. I know a few people like that. So. Exactly. <laughs> we can't talk about that publicly. Um, so six years with the WPT, and you mentioned that you were involved with Party Booker, and those two, you know, it feels like they kind of overlap uh, in the time period, you know, so... How'd you yeah. get involved with Party Booker? Is that through Mike Sexton as well? Uh, yes. Um, initially, Mike got invited to go to India and he met with the people and, and they had a good connection. And so he agreed to be a spokesperson, their original spokesperson. And then uh, he, he mentioned to them that, you know, at the time I had one of the best reputations in, that was available in poker and I had a, a big following at the time, and he asked them uh, if if I could be involved as co-ambassadors, I guess you would say. Party Poker had some challenges back then. Um, technology was new, and um, sometimes things would break down, and they needed to have two spokespeople that could assure the public, poker playing public, that um, it was on the up and up, and uh, between my reputation and Mike's reputation, uh, people believed in party poker. They were willing to put the money down uh, because we endorsed it. So that's how Mike actually got me involved in in that one. Yeah, and party poker, I've mentioned it multiple times on this podcast, but it was the place to play poker before UIGEA. It was just, it was the biggest and it wasn't even close. Absolutely. Yeah, we hosted the first party poker million on card player cruises and um, we had a, a million dollar guarantee and I think this was like in 2001 or 2002, million dollar guarantee back then was huge. Well, unfortunately, we only um, generated 600,000 in prize money. And so Card Player Cruises had to pay 400,000. We had guaranteed it. Now, if it was like today, most of, a lot of card rooms make these guarantees and they cancel them or they change the conditions or they, you know, I mean, but to me, integrity is everything and your reputation is everything. I've, I am very proud of my reputation over the years in poker. And so we paid the 400,000 and it almost bankrupted us uh, at the time. And, um, but then we got to uh, be affiliates for party poker and, you know, got the money back from that, but it was, it was very scary. Yeah. That sounds pretty scary. Who won that tournament, by the way, do you remember? 
Kathy Lieber. Lieber. I was going to say, I, I think I remember it was a limit tournament as well, right? Yes, it was a limit. Uh-huh. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, I, I remember. No Limit didn't really start its uh, its attraction to poker until I would say around, but after the World Poker Tour started airing, that's when, when No Limit Poker you know, kind of took a grasp on the American public. But up until then, the only time you could play No Limit was during the World Series of Poker. There were no card rooms in Las Vegas that spread No Limit before the World Poker Tour happened. Um, and then all of a sudden, you've got people coming in saying, I want to play that game. You know, all of a sudden, my hairdresser's asking me about it. My mailman is saying, you know, do you know that game where you can put all your money in? I say, yeah, I know that game. <laughs> <laughs> but the public fell in love with No Limit, which is kind of a shame um, because, you know, it, it's much better for the public to play limit where they don't go broke in one hand. So here's a funny story that made me feel very old that happened just in the last three weeks. I was messing around on Bovada playing some 3060 limit, like three handed, which shockingly is still a game. You can still play that somewhere online. Uh, so I was just messing around just because I thought it might be fun and I hadn't played limit poker in like 15 years. And I was like, well, let's see what it, what it's like. And, um, so I'm playing and one of my students asked me what I was doing and I told him and he did not even know how limit hold'em worked. <laughs> he, he's like a he's like a professional poker player that plays like 500 and 1000 no limit online he had no idea how he how the game was even structured um which made me feel quite quite old yeah but, well back in the day that's all there was was limit poker and as i said the only time you could ever play no limit was during the world series of poker yeah which, which was only you know 10 days two weeks in the beginning and then it just keeps growing uh, bigger and bigger and longer and longer yeah, for sure. When I got into poker in 2004, you couldn't play No Limit Cash anywhere. Like you right. could play freeze outs. Um, like uh, I would play, speaking of cruises, I started my poker career on the cruises to nowhere in Florida that would yeah. <laughs> go to international waters. Um, but yeah, they had no like, I, I remember the first time they had a No Limit Hold'em Cash game. It was like a big deal that they were spreading it. Mm -hmm. How did it feel going from, you know, playing this game that's you know very niche and not a ton of people are playing it to you know your hairdresser and just people everywhere talking about poker well it felt great because poker really was a dying game i mean if you looked around the card room the average demographic was uh, was a man in his uh, uh late 60s early 70s i mean and so when all of a sudden this is now america's favorite game card you know it's it was exciting for me and I was like, okay, we're in good hands. The young people are coming in and I had no clue the young people were going to be so good, but um, they, uh, they brought life to the game. Well, the young people were very obsessed and wanted some freedom in their life. I think that was the, you know, it's funny, the thing that you alluded to, by the way, of you, before you bought card player magazine, um, the sort of existential thoughts of what am I giving back to the world and I'm just beating people out of their money and what is it all for? So before I started this podcast, I like a lot of people do when they only have a sample size of one in their own life experience. I thought I was the only person that felt that way uh, after being in poker for you know 15 years. And what I've come to learn is that this is like it's just part of the path after 10 years in this game or so. These are the natural questions that 
every single high level poker player I've had on this podcast has always asked themselves of like, what am I, what is this for? What am I giving back to the world? How do I, you know, you just, should I keep playing this game if it's not going to, if I'm not giving back and I'm not experiencing joy in playing anymore? Um, I'm glad to hear that because, you know, I think that poker players as a whole, as a group are very generous and, um, and are good people. I think so too. And very, there's a lot of empathy, you know, there's a high level of empathy that you need to have to, in order to be a high level card player for the most part. And with that comes thoughts of, you know, the other side of the coin, right? The, the darker side of poker, the folks who are just torching and consistently losing and maybe it's hurting their families and all of these things of like, wow, so I make, make X number of dollars per year. This is literally taking from all these people collectively over the course of the year. Yeah. And it's for me playing against old men, really old, feeble men. Um, it was heartbreaking, but at the time I respect the game and I knew my job was to get the money. And sure. you know, as much as you're tempted to, um, to soft play or be empathetic or whatever, you, you cannot let it affect you in poker. You know, I always say I have three goals when I go out to play. First goal is to win money. That's probably everybody's goal. The second goal is to have fun. And the third goal is to make sure that my opponents have fun. And so, you know, I took some, some relief, I guess, or maybe I just wanted to believe that at least when I took their money, I didn't berate them and make them feel like idiots. You know, I was sympathetic with them. And, you know, I was, I tried to always be kind at the table and, and nice to people. Yeah. And this is like what the prototypical professional poker players ought to be like, you know? And I mean, when I, when I was younger, I said that if I played poker against my grandmother and she knew the rules, then yeah, we're, I'm checking, check raising her all night long, baby. And I still would today. <laughs> that hasn't changed. <laughs> I have check raised my mother. <laughs> yeah. We, we sit down we, when we sit down at the table to play cards against each other. We've both entered into a contract that we're going to do our damnedest to take one another's money and outthink and be more clever than each other. And so to me, when you sit down and play poker, that's what it should be like. That's right. Then you can buy them dinner afterwards after the game. But uh, during the game, you know, you know, the saying there's no friends at the poker table. That is true. Absolutely. The decision to enter a hand is fundamental to poker strategy too tight. And they know what you have too loose and you're easy to run over. Free Flop Bootcamp from Chasing Poker Greatness is a comprehensive guide to locking down your preflop game and creating true range advantage. Eight days of guided training, over 60 optimal ranges, and access to a dedicated community of players that will push your preflop game from a place of weakness to your greatest strength. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. Available now. Before bootcamp, I had been playing for maybe 15 years, somewhat seriously, always trying to get better, jumping from learning program to different learning programs and training site to training site. Kind of feeling a little bit lost, not really knowing how to go about getting better. And preflop bootcamp just felt like a great starting point, a way for me to to move from being a losing player to, to possibly a winning player. It felt like the right first step. Once you jumped in boot camp, what was your experience like? 
Well, first off, I realized that I'd been making a lot of mistakes prior to boot camp, kind of learning what Rangers should look like and what hands should be played and what situations. You know, it was it was exciting because I I could see what other people had been doing to me, what kind of what I had been missing in my game. And then from there, just the whole camaraderie of everybody that's um, signed up, working together, trying to achieve that goal. You know, that, that was fun. That's uh, pushing each other and really helping uh, one another, kind of feeling like you're a part of a team. It was, uh, it was a great experience. I, I enjoyed the process and I learned a lot. What was your experience like playing cards post bootcamp? It's a totally different experience. You know, it put me in a position to be successful as opposed to always being behind the eight ball and, and playing catch up. Um, I really feel like it's it's the foundation of, of a solid poker game. And uh, since boot camp, I've been able to, to turn a profit and keep building on what I learned there. You know, being able to go back into the group and uh, re really work together even after boot camp was over, it's it's been awesome. What's your sample size of winning post boot camp? I think I have 70,000 hands played by now. You know, I'm a father and I have a job, so I'm not a, a professional player by any means. That's my sample size. Preflop Bootcamp is the flagship Chasing Poker Greatness training program. If you'd like to dramatically upgrade your preflop game, a new bootcamp launches on the last Saturday of every single month, and your link to join is chasingpokergreatness.com slash bootcamp. One more time, that's chasingpokergreatness.com slash bootcamp, all one word, or you can click through in the description box of this episode. So you get, you know, we're in the year 2006-ish, right? I, I guess that's when you left WPT and the whole UIGEA thing happened with Party Poker. So what was next after, you know, after you lost those responsibilities? Well, I started teaching World Poker Tour Boot Camp um, around 2004, 2005. And so I continued to teach boot camp. Uh, I, I also, uh, I was the original um, chairman of the uh, Poker Players Alliance in Washington, D.C. So I was involved in, in a lot of things. I was a, a host for the LIPS Tour, the Ladies International Poker Series. I was a host for the Senior Poker Tour. And so um, I was constantly doing seminars all over the country, teaching poker, uh, hosting poker tournaments, and playing poker. It, it was, as I said, a dream come true. What happened to the PPA? Like, I remember the PPA was like, it was like a big deal. And then I don't know what happened to it. Uh, it lost funding. You know, when things changed with uh, after Yuja, um, you know, there was no reason for people like PokerStars to continue funding it. And so that's what happened. Gotcha. So, yeah. And then I, I think that's one of the saddest things for me was, you know, the, the powers that be in poker. I guess poker was su such an immature thing that kind of sprang up that like there was not lobbying or not as much lobbying to make sure that something like UIGEA didn't happen, or maybe it was inevitable. I don't know really the legalities behind everything that happened. I just know that like I'm from Tennessee and Senator Bill Frist was the one who added it on to the, uh, to the port security bill. Oh, right. Um, I was involved in lobbying in Washington DC on 
on a few occasions. And, um, you know, I might have like 12 senators to visit to ask for help. And it's funny, all they did, you know, when I first went to the Hill, I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to make a difference in this. And, you know, my, you know, this is our political process. And I was so young and naive. Mm -hmm. And um, the minute I realized that every office I walked into was like, got their hand out for money. What are you going to do for me? And I was just so disenchanted. And, you know, um, I guess there wasn't enough money on our side to beat the money on the other side. And it, it's, you know, unfortunately, our political system is so screwed up. And But, it, you know, politicians are interested in two things, um, getting reelected and getting money uh, so they can be reelected. And, you know, it's just a sad state of affair that nobody really cares about what's best for the country or you know, um, and we had such convincing arguments. Obviously, it would it would be so much better if online poker was legal and, and people could play, you know, in honest games and, and they wouldn't have to drive to card rooms. I mean, and, and there's a lot of people that are disabled that can't get out to a card room, physically disabled, a lot of veterans, you know, that um, even, even my friend's father, you know, it was dangerous for him driving to a card room, whereas if he'd been online, he could have stayed home. So we had all these great talking points, but none of it mattered because there wasn't enough money on our side. Yeah, it wasn't about what's the best thing to do. It's about how well can you grease my palms or grease the the engine. And I assume that the opposition on the other side are, you know, as is typical in spots like this, the people who stand to gain from online poker not being a thing, so the casino industry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and the, uh, the moral aspect, they have money too. The, you know, the, I'm just going to say the moral majority. <laughs> yeah, well, it happened, Senator, in Tennessee, so squarely in the Bible Belt um, and Bill Friss was a lame duck senator as well. This was like his parting gift to the poker world, um, just effing us right out the door. Yeah, I, I know he didn't get re- reelected. I, I don't. So you're saying that he didn't even run again? I don't think so. I think that was his final term, and that was just the thing that he was going to do get through before he left. Yeah, it was very sneaky, and you know that's it's it's bullshit. That's all there is to it. Yeah, it is. And it's had long-term massive downstream effects on lots of human beings' lives over these past, you know, 15 years or so. Yeah. And, and that's, that was another talking point that, that is true. You know, so it's not just the online operators, but there were people that fed them. There were so many jobs involved with online poker and, you know, immediately everybody was out of work. And, and not just job, but money, you know, like with ESPN marketing, advertising growth, like there, it, it was a booming industry before, you know, Black Friday in 2011. And what did you, what did you think? Do you remember where you were at when Black Friday went down and, you know, the poker world kind of, yeah, just shocked us to our core? Yeah. Um, you know, if I remember correctly, I didn't know anything about it until I went to log on to Party Poker. Um, you know, I played a lot online back then and uh, there was an announcement, something, you know, I, I don't remember the exact wording, but to the effect that, um, there, you know, it was going to be closed down and you couldn't play anymore. And, you know, luckily I got I had money on a few sites and I was able to get all of it back. Did you ever have opportunity to partner up for any more online poker rooms after uh, you left party poker? No, no, I had a, a, a non-compete. non-compete. Yeah. 
Ah, gotcha. Makes sense. Um, so what's funny, I, so my, the course that I sell is called preflop bootcamp. And I thought, Oh, I'm just like very clever for just putting the word bootcamp in my, my course name. And now, now you're like, you ran the WPT bootcamp and I'm like, ah, well, not so clever. Um, I guess. Yeah. And, and that was fun. I love WPT bootcamp. I love teaching poker. I, I, you know, I, I like to teach men and women, but especially women. I love to see women excel at the game. It's not, it's not really something that a lot of women are good at because uh, as you know, in order to be successful, you have to be aggressive in poker, not maniacally aggressive, but you have to be aggressive. And, you know, a lot of women don't have that aggressive gene because they were taught, you know, be demure and, and, you know, be a good little girl. And, you know, they weren't taught that, um, that killer instinct. I think that, you know, more of the male population has than the female population. When did you stop teaching with the WPT boot camps and the seminars and traveling around? Because again, like it's just kind of, it's funny to me that, you know, this is your path through the poker world. And I'm thinking about my own path and moving into content creation and making courses and teaching, which is where I spend, you know, probably 80 to 90% of my energy these days. Well, um, I was with WPT boot camp until the end, it kind of closed and then it got, um, reinvented as learn WPT, but I would say that was probably six or seven years ago. Um, but I still travel a lot and I still host tournaments all over the country up until COVID started. I was probably um, hosting eight to 10 tournaments around the country and doing seminars at most of the sites that I hosted at. That sounds like the dream. That sounds like yeah, a good it, life. It is. It is. And I'm still, you know, these tours like the ladies international poker series starting again and um, the senior poker tour are starting again. And so I'll be back uh, hosting events again. We, we just had one in April that um, Jan Fisher and I hosted and um, it was a, it was the first one after COVID and we had 317 ladies for the main event, which was pretty strong. Yeah. That's a lot. I, the, the pent up demand for poker after COVID I think is just, it's it's an extreme thing. I, I don't know that the poker world ha has experienced anything like it. I think like when live poker comes back in full and earnest, we're just going to be breaking records left and right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, people are hungry to play, you know, and and they've got money saved up from uh, not going out for eighteen months. Yeah, and I, I do remember there was lots of speculation that everybody was going to be broke from playing in all the online tournaments, but I don't think... There, there's a lot of this speculation, I think, that's kind of cyclical over time that everybody's going to go broke, but it's like, you know, people make money. They save up money, and then they have discretionary income to spend playing poker. Right, right. Um, um, go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask about pokergives.org. You know, I know that's another thing that you... I believe you founded it, Right. I founded it with Jan Fisher, Mike Sexton, and Lisa Tenner. The four of us uh, were trying to figure out how we could channel uh, poker into a charitable organization. So we developed, we started Poker Gives. And back then we had a lot of fundraisers, uh, tournaments where we would take a small part of the um, prize pool and give it to the charity. Now, Poker Gives from the beginning has been 100% uh, donation driven and 100% give back the money to the community. Nobody at Poker Gives gets a salary. Nobody ever has or ever will. And it's all volunteers. Um, we have a lot of good programs. This, this, every Monday night, we go out and feed the homeless. Uh, this past Monday, I cooked for 200 people. And uh, we went out and, and 
we we have two spots in Las Vegas where we set up uh, tables and we give the homeless people a, a, a hot meal and it might be the only one they get for the week. Uh, so I really hope anybody listening will make us a donation. $20, because of the way we operate, $20 will feed 20 people. Um, you know, it's it's like I don't, when I cook for them, I don't turn in a bill and I don't think any of the other volunteers do. It's just something we do because we want to help people. And uh, so your donations to Poker Gives, you know, we, we do homeless projects, we do backpack projects, we, we have all these different, um, we, we help the military. Like, you know, since we're located in Las Vegas, we have Nellis Air Force Base here and they'll call up and say, I need a wheelchair for a veteran and we'll, we'll get it for them and things like that. So Poker Gives is, uh, it's not like other charities. It makes me angry sometimes that we can't get more donations because people give to a lot of charities where 85% of the money goes to uh, administration. And whereas with us, nothing goes to administration, everything gets given back. And for those people in the audience that are professional poker players that may have, you know, those existential thoughts that I was talking about, you know, just 30 minutes or so ago about what am I doing? Uh, what am I giving back? as a professional poker player, like just because we make money playing cards and being more clever than people and beating people out of money, that doesn't mean that, you know, you can't take that money and do good with it and give back into the world. Um, you know, yeah, just, just because, uh, we beat people in a game for a living doesn't mean that we have to keep all the spoils of our, of our victories and we can just give back and help, you know, in that way. And I think that there's a lot to be said for giving back. Thank you, Brad. Yeah. And um, we are a 501c, so everything is fully deductible. So anybody who wants to go to pokergives.org and click the donate button, it's, uh, you know, $5 is, we, we have no minimum and no maximum. So we're happy with any donations we get. That's that's great. I'll, I'm going to head there after oh, we, cool. we get done talking and give All a right. donation. Oh, I love it. Um, where did the idea for pokergives.org come from? Um, well, Mike and Jan and I and Lisa, we, we thought, you know, if we could just get poker players to donate maybe 1% of, of their tournament winnings over the years. And that was initially the way we wanted to set it up. And um, this, this was a long time ago when um, I think today they have charities where a lot more people participate. Uh, but that was the idea behind it. And we did have some people make pledges and some people um, did help. But we decided instead of doing it that way, we would just have tournaments and have events around the country, small events. Now, we don't raise, a lot of these charities will have a poker tournament night and they'll raise, you know, a million dollars. Well, um, Mike and Jan and Lisa and I paid all the expenses of Poker Gives out of our own pocket because we wanted uh, all the money that came in to go to uh, to the charity. And so, you know, we couldn't afford to put on these huge events that cost you know, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to put on to raise this kind of money. So we've never had big money, but, you know, if we get even $100,000 a year, which is kind of what I think that, you know, they're getting these days in, in through all the different donations, then, then that, that covers us to do what we need to do. And we, we help a lot of people. It's amazing. That's great to hear. And, um, so let's uh we'll shift gears now to to the lightning round do you need to take a moment uh no i'm okay 
Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Uh, it's, and ask me how long. Uh, uh, yeah. Talk. I said, I don't know, maybe half an hour. I don't know. You're, you're a very good interviewer. And this feels like a very natural flow of conversation. So thank you, Brad. I'm enjoying this very much. Uh, me too. It, it's my pleasure. And, you know, I have a producer who can like cut stuff out if, oh. you know, you need time oh. for whatever. Oh, thank you. Okay. Um, I was going to ask you, uh, what's the most unexpected thing that's come from your journey through cards? I think the most unexpected thing has been all the travel I've been able to do. Um, you know, I started making a list of countries I've been to and, and it was like 110 countries. And um, I didn't even know, know there were that many countries. <laughs> yeah, I think 196, but I've been to like 110 <laughs> of them. So the travel, the friendships, I think, you know, when you make a friend at poker, a really good friend, that that is a relationship that lasts a long time. Card Player Cruises has been probably the best thing in my life as far as meeting people, meeting friends, and getting to travel. So it's just, you know, I've, I've been on over 300 cruises, and on each cruise, we teach people how to play poker. And I think um, being able to give that gift to, to people has, has been my greatest joy. That, what do you think makes poker players... That, what's the makeup of a poker player that makes them so friend worthy over a long period of time? I think, I think integrity. I mean, you know, I love what Chip Reese said one day. He said, you know, I was torn between being a poker player or an attorney. And so I chose the more honorable of the two professions. And, you know, I just think that as a, certainly in the older days, you know, most of my poker friends have been friends for years and years and years. I don't have that many newer players as friends, you know, the, a lot of younger players today, not so many people my age, but I just think people, poker players are inherently good people uh, for the most part and, and they keep their word and, you know, and integrity. Well, that's, that's great to hear, especially considering how nightmarish it was <laughs> in, yeah. in the early days. You know, I guess the, was there a correlation between like the people that played professionally? Were they nicer overall or was just everybody kind of an ass back then? I think everybody was, was nice, you know, and I've had, I've had so many great moments in poker that, um, you know, I think winning my bracelet in 97 I have a story to tell you about that. In 1997, sure. I won a, a bracelet in Raz, and, and that was like the highlight of my poker career. And the headlines the next day said, second woman in history wins bracelet. I said, no, no, no. I was the third woman because I was there when Vera Richmond won, and I was there when um, Barbara Enright won. I said, uh, why, why does it say I'm the second? And they said, well, we're not putting Vera in the record books. And I said, why not? They said, because she was a bitch. I mean, this is what a man's world was back then. And, and believe me, she was. But you know what? I said, there's plenty of asshole men that are in there. You have to put her in. And it took like two years to get her name put in the record book, but we finally succeeded. And that's one of the funniest stories to this day that I, I can't believe they just were going to not put her in because she was a bitch. Wow. Yeah. I mean, Johnny Moss was like voted the best player and won the WSOP main event. And that's, that's in the record books, um, which that's yeah, a little, that's a little questionable, you know? He was mean. He, he was pretty mean, especially to the dealers. Uh, he was, was he? Abusive, yeah. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard similar things uh, of, you know, a lot of the kind of legends that came up in those days of poker um, that just, I don't know if that, if it was just, 
societal or I, I don't know. I, who, who, I don't know the mechanisms in place. Yeah. I mean, if you allow people to be abusive, they will be abusive. And if you don't allow it, you don't allow it. Like, like on our cruises, you know, we, we send out materials in advance. We say, because we want you to have fun, we won't allow any abuse in the card room. And I say that at the opening party, I repeat it, you know? And so people know what to expect and they don't act up because they know we're serious. And so if you don't allow it, you won't have it. And I, I, when I talk to card room managers, we used to have, when I owned Card Player, we had the industry poker uh, convention every year of card room managers. And I would tell them, I said, if you have abuse in your card room, look in the mirror because it's your fault, you know? And, and so, you know, it was allowed back then. You can't really fault the players. It was allowed. And so they did it. Um, but, you know, all these newer, younger players, they're not even younger anymore. They're in their late 30s and 40s. But, you know, I mean, guys like Antonio and Phil Locke and, and um, Daniel. And I mean, they've come to be good ambassadors for the game. Absolutely. And, you know, there's still some, uh, I mean, shenanigans, I guess, that go on at the poker table. I mean, even to this day, I think poker's a very emotional game. And whenever there's high emotions involved, people are snappy and, and stuff like that. How, how, what, for the poker room managers and people that have say and are setting rules for their card rooms, what advice would you give them to run a, run a cleaner room that's more enjoyable to play in, um, that the players have more fun just gambling? I would say train your staff uh, in how to handle problems as they arise. There are going to be problems. And look, poker rooms are not churches. And, and you know, if somebody takes a bad beat and they want to, you know, say to themselves the F word under their breath or something where it's not directed at somebody, you know, I don't even have a problem with, with that. But when they start directing that language or verbal abuse or towards other people, towards the dealer, when they're throwing cards, you know, the staff needs to be trained in how to do this. We have a lot of progressive managers here in in um in las vegas i mean i just met gary hager the other day he's uh at resorts world and you know i just loved his attitude we talked about this and we have managers like sean mccormick at aria and um, jason sandberg at south point and they they do not have abuse in their card room because they don't allow it and um i think it's magnificent and the staff just needs to be trained how to how to treat people and I also think it would be a good idea to have signs in poker rooms saying this is a no abuse card room. You know? For sure. I mean, what I've learned about in life is that like oftentimes, I mean, there are some bad people, but for the most part, it's a systemic process problem that allows the shenanigans sort of downstream. And it's a responsibility of the powers that be to have systems and processes in place that cut that off, you know, cut it, cut it off sort of before it begins. Yeah. And uh, one thing that the uh, LIPS, the Ladies International Poker Series is doing is they've started a new campaign called Raise It Up. And what they're talking about is raise up the uh, standards uh, of behavior in the, in the card room. And they're, um, they've got programs, they're talking to different card room managers about trying to get things, you know, some training for, um, you know, for, for dealers and their staff on how to deal with it. It needs to be nipped in the bud right away when it happens, and then you won't have it. Absolutely. And, you know, card rooms, card rooms have had a tendency in the past, at least, to not want to, um, to bar anybody because they're so afraid of losing a player and what they don't realize. And we've tried to educate them on this, like through our poker conferences and stuff. They don't realize that instead of, um, you know, worrying about losing that one player, 
people don't want to play in abusive situations and your recreational players will stop coming. So they, they might lose 10 players instead of one. So it really is advantageous to the whole industry to throw out the bad apples and um, not let them come back. Absolutely. And so the, you, you mentioned, you know, the highlight of your poker career being you, you won a WSOP bracelet. I want to ask you about being inducted to the Poker Hall of Fame, because that seems like a pretty big highlight as well. So tell me about that. Absolutely. Yeah, they, they are probably co-highlights. It, it was such an honor. I never thought that a woman uh, would get voted into the Poker Hall of Fame and um, because it's it's men who vote. And I, I feel like one of the reasons I was voted in is because of the stance I took uh, against the abuse and a lot of the uh, poker players know me and they know my reputation. And, you know, I wasn't voted in because I play high limit poker. I mean, I'll play up to one in 200, but I'm not playing the bet your life games as I call them. So I wasn't voted in for that. I was, I think I was voted in for the contributions I've made, uh, in the industry. And for that. That's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing cool. and yeah. not, no, it's, 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 it's okay. Not many people can claim that they're in the Booker Hall of Fame and that's yeah. just an amazing honor. Oh, it is indeed. Um, and, um, then the, the world poker tour, start, it's a funny story. They started what's called WPT honors, which is their, um, hall of fame. And so I got a call from Adam Pliska one day and, uh, he started explaining to me that they were starting this, um, honors program, uh, poker hall of fame for world poker tour. And I felt like he was calling me to invite me to Mike Sexton's induction. And then he, he said, and we want you to be the first one inducted in. Wow. Yeah. So, so then I, Mike Sexton ended up quitting the poker world poker tour like three months later. And I started needling him and said, sure, Mike, just cause I got voted in before you do, <laughs> <laughs> you got to go and quit. But he had been offered this fabulous position at party poker. So um, financially, it was a life changer, and he he had to leave for that reason. But I always tease him that I got in before him. Well, for someone who's devoted her her pretty much her whole life or her whole adult life to this game of poker, cleaning it up, growing it, making it fun, making people feel more safe, um, it's just yeah, you're the. The benefit that you've brought the poker world is just incalculable. And I, for one, am very, very grateful for you. Well, thank you, Brad. And there's so many good people um, who have given so much uh, to the industry. And, and our mutual friend, Matt Savage, certainly um, starting the, the Tournament Directors Association um, when, he, when he did. And, you know, um, it was started by Matt and um, Jan and, and Dave Lamb and I were, were, I guess, the original founders, the four of us. But that has done so much for the poker industry. And, and I want to commend Matt. We've got to get him into the Poker Hall of Fame. He has given so much to the poker world, um, you know, as, as far as uh, he answers every question and he's made um, player-friendly structures. And, you know, he's just done so much for the poker world. There's so many people out there like that, but I, I definitely want to give Matt a shout out, and especially since we're mutual friends. Yeah. And I mean, I love Matt. He's been on the podcast three times. I think now we were texting before, you know, you and I fired up this interview. Um, and yeah, I, I think 
Yeah, I, I just, I love these relationships that's come from this podcast. I love, you know, having Matt on my email list and being able to message him back and forth. And I just have to imagine that like when thing, when lockdown kind of goes away and the world gets a little bit back to the way it is and I'm able to start traveling, um, I really genuinely cannot wait to get into the Booker world because like before I was just an anonymous cash game grinder that looks like a youngish white guy uh <laughs> the same as all the other youngish white people that show up to play in the WSOP but now yeah my network has grown I've made just incredible friendships through this podcast and relationships and I'm just ready to go see people in the real world and have drinks and play some cards well you'll definitely be welcomed in and, and as you said these friendships that you make in poker are you know, they're lifetime friendships and there's so many good people. I mean, I love so many players, Barry Greenstein and Elio Lazaro and all, the, all these guys are just so welcoming, welcoming and, and they open their hearts to you. And, um, you know, they're, they're great people in addition to being great poker players. Absolutely. Um, well, let's, let's move to the lightning round in earnest. Now I have some <laughs> prepared questions that I hope I don't, um, I, I don't lengthen too dramatically. What's some common poker advice you hear that you just completely disagree with? Oh, wow. Um, I hear mostly good poker advice. Let me think of some bad one. Um, well, there was one person who, who would dispel the law of attraction in, as it comes to poker. If you, if you wish for it enough, it's going to come. Well, you know, I do agree it's good to have a good attitude, but I'm sorry, <laughs> wishing for the card to come is not going to make it come. So that, that's probably the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, if there were a poker god I could pray to to spike my three-outer every time, I would be burning incense and praying <laughs> every time I got it all in bad. Um, what's a gift? Uh, if, if you could gift all poker players one book to read, and it doesn't necessarily have to be about poker, what book? What book would it be? Um, winning poker tournaments one hand at a time. I think that's um, probably the best tournament book that I've ever read. Winning poker tournaments one hand at a time. Who's the author? Well, there, I, wait a minute. I've got two two books mixed up. Okay, one's by Gus Hansen, one's by Eric Lynch. Um, Gus Hansen's Every Hand Revealed. Every Hand Revealed, and then so Eric Lynch is winning poker. Uh, I got it right here. <laughs> <laughs> winning poker uh, tournaments one hand at a time is Eric Lynch then. Yeah. yeah. But every hand revealed was very, very good too. Very good. I mean, and, his, uh, even though I don't agree, there, there's a few things in there I don't agree with when you ask about what I don't agree with in, um, in poker theory, but his thought process for anybody uh, and his calculations mathematically and those kinds of things, every hand revealed is an amazing book. It, it really is. And I don't read a ton of poker books, especially these days, but Every Hand Revealed was compelling. I mean, it was really, really interesting. I believe it was the Aussie Millions that Gus took down and he had that tape recorder that you would see him with on like the poker broadcast for like a number of years. I assume he was like verbalizing every single hand that he played in every single poker tournament that he played in until he took a major one down so that he could write the book. Yeah. So um, we, we are fortunate to have so many great poker books. Mike Sexton's book about stories, um, Gamblers, I can't remember the name of it, but it's all about stories. 
of, of the gambling world and, and his high limit action and his prop bets. And um, so that's, if you just want a really good read and, and you don't want to just have strategy, I, I think that book, and I'm sorry, I can't think of the name. It's of it. Life's a Gamble. I just, yeah. I, I Googled yeah. it myself um, just yeah. now. <laughs> but that one is, is, you know, I'd probably give that one to everyone because it's so entertaining and it gives you a look at uh, the, the high world of, um, of poker. For sure. And I love the stories. Um, there was a book that Doyle wrote a billion years ago that was just a short book and it was a bunch of stories that I remember fondly as well. I can't, I have no idea what the name of it was though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I read it too and I don't remember the name. I just remember one story about a guy who would like rip his clothes every time he won a pot. I don't know. who. <laughs> I don't even know if these are like real stories or if Doyle just made them up. Some of them sound like they might be a little t- bit tall tale-ish. A little exaggerated, but you know what? I mean, there used to be real characters in the poker world. I remember Ken Smith every, and he would come uh, dressed in a top hat and a, like a three piece suit, you know, a, black, a beautiful black suit. And every time he would win a pot, he would take his top hat off and say, what a player. And you know, <laughs> we, had, we had all these characters back then, you know, and, uh, and Cobb, every day he would wear a different hat, the goofiest hats. He would come in, you know, hat looking like a cheeseburger or, you know, we had all these characters back then. Yeah. We, we need more um, top hats and, or in goofy characters. I think in the world of poker these days, less robots, more characters. Right. Uh, um, if you could erect a billboard, every poker player's got to drive past on their way to the card room. What does your billboard say? Win money, have fun, make other players have fun. Which short. is my, my, that's my, my mantra, I guess my theme. Yeah. Short and sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, you working on any projects right now that are near and dear to your heart that we haven't covered? No, not really. Um, just uh, continue to be um, active, semi-active, I should say, with the Tournament Directors Association. I was talking to Matt about maybe getting back on the board. I've actually, over the past five years, tried to get off um, boards and try to leave things to younger people. I mean, I'm I'm going to be 68 uh, next month, and I, I think, um, you know, I, I'm happy with the things that I've done, but I want to see uh, younger people take the reins and, and go for it. So... Uh, it's more of a trying to dispel projects. Well, don't fully extract yourself from poker. We need you, Linda. We, we need you as long as, as long as we can possibly have you. Thank you. Thank you. It's, you know, and, and, um, it's not just about what I've given to poker. Poker's given me a beautiful life and I'm so appreciative. And, you know, I, every day I'm just, you know, I count my blessings and, and, and I say, man, what if I'd never gotten involved in poker? It was a tough decision in 1980. I, I was making $50,000 a year in the post office in 1980 in a secure government job, as I mentioned, first up to be a postmaster. And here, you know, the thought of, I, I just, just went and gave my notice and, and uh, moved to Las Vegas to become a professional poker player. And that was a scary thing because I thought, I'm giving up my secure future for uh, something that may or may not work out. And then I thought, you know what, I'm smart enough that if it doesn't work out, I can come back and get a good job. And uh, I don't want to be on my deathbed saying, man, I wish I had uh, tried poker for a living. I, I just, I wouldn't have wanted that to happen. And um, so I've had no regrets at all. And poker has been so good to me. And, um, and, and fortunately, I've been able to give something to poker as well. So it, it's, a, it's a mutual win-win. Yeah. And that's, that's a very wise um, thought process for, 
a 20 year old human being because uh, there's a book that's called The Regret of the Dying. And the number one regret of the dying is that they didn't live a life that was true to themselves. And so, you know, you can never say that. You chose your passion and, you know, have had a very well lived life through the world of poker. Yeah, I broke my mother's heart, though. You know, <laughs> when I moved to Las Vegas, you know, she was always supportive. She was the best mom ever, but she supported anything I wanted to do. But she was not happy about me moving to Las Vegas. She, she helped me pack and go, but she was like so afraid that I was going to uh, be sleeping on the streets. And, you know, I mean, people didn't understand back then that you could really make a living playing poker. And that's one thing we always taught in boot camp is, you know, um, there's no professional roulette players, no professional craps players, but there are lots of professional poker players because in poker, you know, if you play better than your opponents at the end of the year, you're going to to win more money, you know. Yep. And, um, but she was very upset. And then when I bought her her first car, she started being a less, a little less upset. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that was the come around moment when you bought her yeah. a car. Yeah, yeah. and Good. then the cruises came and the, you know, She's like, eh, poker might not be so bad. It, to be fair, um, I don't know that there's ever a time in history where quitting a job and becoming a professional poker player hasn't been seen as a very risky endeavor. You know, even if that were to go down today, it would still be exceptionally an exceptionally risky um, move or an exceptionally risky endeavor. So, yeah, you know, it's, but back then. No, but I mean, actually, shockingly, because I'm so embedded in the poker world, it sometimes I'll talk about poker and people will still not even know that you can be a professional poker player just like out in the wild. Yeah. When I used to say, people say, what do you do for a living? I'd say, I play, po I play poker. And they say, oh, where do you deal? I mean, they just didn't understand. Uh, there's a little bit more understanding now. It's because of TV and people see it. But, you know, I get letters sometimes from, uh, you know, like, 18, 19 year old kids. And, and they'll say, you know, would you please tell my parents that it's okay for me to uh, not go to college and to play for a living? And I say, I absolutely will not tell your parents that I say, I say, I think you should go ahead and get your college education, play poker on the side. Uh, once you have your education, if you want to play poker and, uh, and you can try it, but I say for every hundred people that tries to make a living playing poker, maybe only one or two will succeed because, you know, it's not easy. You really have to have, you know, um, you have to have the touch, I think. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know what it is you need to have, but as somebody that was like solving tic-tac-toe in the fifth grade and writing spade strategies out on notebook papers and lit class in the ninth grade, like it just made a lot of sense that I would get involved in the world of poker. And it just was always a very natural fit. And I think if you're in this gig for just the money, um, that's not enough to push through and, you know, be a winning professional poker player. You really have to love it. It's got to be something that kind of resonates with your soul. Yeah. I, th I think it's sad that some of my um, poker playing peers um, don't love it like I do. You know, some of them do do it for paycheck. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's like for me, poker is such a passion and I can't wait to play my next hand of poker. You know, that doesn't mean I'm a degenerate or anything, but I, I truly love the game and I feel bad for people that, um, that play and don't love it, you know? And as you said, in order to be really successful, you, you kind of have to love it, but there are people who can make money and, and just do it as a job. Sure. 
I mean, and people can play it recreationally and make money there too. And that's sort of like one of the first questions that I ask any prospective one-to-one private coaching student is like, what's your goal? What are you in this for? What is your life situation? And if it doesn't line up, if it doesn't make sense, then, you know, it's not a good fit and we just don't proceed forward because I, (laughs) the last thing I ever want to be in this world is a facilitator of somebody doing something that's detrimental to, you know, their family, their lifestyle. Yeah. you have to be emotionally stable to be a poker player because there are huge ups and downs, um, especially when you're first starting out. You know, uh, I used to wear my heart on my sleeve when I had a losing day. It was just an unhappy day around my household. And, you know, and, and then I've come to realize that, uh, you know, things change the more you play. Like at first, the first five, 10 years, I would get really angry when I would lose. And, and I just thought it was so unfair, you know, when, when I'd have aces and they'd have kings and they'd win. And, you know, I just thought because my ego was involved in it. And um, then I realized it's, it's a game of math, you know, and, and I already know that, uh, you know, when I have aces and they have kings, they, they're going to win a percentage of the time. And, you know, truly these things don't bother me anymore. But in the beginning, it was such an affront to my ego that I could be beaten and that the best hand didn't always hold up and, you know, stuff like that. So you have to, um, you know, I was miserable when I lost and, and uh, I'm proud to say, I don't feel that way anymore. And I I realize it's going to happen. And, you know, anybody who tells you they win every day is bullshit because nobody can win every day. Absolutely not. And you just have to reconcile yours. I will say that there is something to be said for hungering to win and not being happy with like how you played or the mistakes that you made, the money that you left on the table. I do think that's an attribute that's pretty necessary for the aspiring poker professional. Yeah. It's it's funny you say money left on the table because um, a lot of times, you know, when I was teaching boot camps, somebody would check on the river instead of making a value bet. And, and I'd say, why? Why did you check? And they'd say, well, the pot's big enough. You know what? The pot is never big enough. <laughs> yeah. Unless all these chips are in the middle, the pot is never big enough. Like we can, yeah. let's always be greedy. Um, Linda, it's been great having you on. Thank you so much for your time and your energy. I've really enjoyed this. And hopefully we get, you know, another chance sometime in the future to throw down for a round two. And uh, final question for the Chasing Poker Greatness listener. Uh, where can they find you on the World Wide Web? Um, my, I'm still a dinosaur, so my email address is cardplayercruise at AOL.com. <laughs> All my friends tease me. You're at AOL. Yeah, you know, I am. <laughs> I, I, I can say this now um, after Mike Sexton passed away, but uh, when... Matt Savage was connecting me with people to have on the podcast. I, I believe Matt, uh, Mike Sexton was one of them. And Mike Sexton's email address was also like, I, it wasn't Mike at AOL.com. But I think it was Mike Sexton at AOL.com as well. Um, yeah, you don't we see, yeah, don't see many of those these days. That's what I hear. Uh, <laughs> I'm probably going down with it. So You're going down with the ship. <laughs> Yeah. Cardplayercruise at AOL.com. Anybody's welcome to write to me. I, uh, I'm happy to answer questions. And uh, I'm not as involved on social media as like Matt is with answering questions. But I do get a lot of emails where, you know, um, people want answers to decisions, uh, you know, tournament decisions or cash game decisions. And uh, anybody's welcome to write to me. Awesome. And y'all's cruises, when are they firing up? 
Our first poker cruise um, with the card room will be November 7th this year. We're going to the Caribbean. And nice. Poker, the card player cruises has, I'd say, 95% of our players are recreational, the other 5% professional. But it is a fun atmosphere where people want to travel and have a good time. You'll never hear as much laughter in any card room as you hear in ours. And uh, we have tournaments and we have live games and we have seminars and parties and uh, private excursions in the ports. And, and, you know, because we've been on all these cruises, we can certainly help guide all of our customers as to what to do. And um, I, I would love it if any of you want to come on Card Player Cruises vacations with us. Absolutely. Where, where do we go to sign up? Where do you all uh, launch from? Um, you can go to cardplayercruises.com. And uh, we have a list of all our upcoming itineraries and, um, you know, contact us. We have a newsletter. We don't bug you. We put it out maybe every six weeks. So you're not going to get a lot of uh, mail from us. But, um, yeah, cardplayercruises.com. Come join us. And I go on every cruise. And I go on the cruise the week before to set it up. That's a good excuse, right? And we have fun. Good. That's great to hear. And, um, yeah, check out Card Player Cruises. Thank you. You're a great interviewer. I've totally enjoyed this session. My the time has flown. My pleasure for me as well. Thank you very much. All right. Let's meet up when you come to Vegas for WSOP. Absolutely. I'll be playing. Uh, I found out there's a King's Room again this year. Uh, so anybody, you know, I usually play in the King's Room. They have a 75-150 Omaha game that I really like. And anybody uh, who's listening, come by and just say hello. Awesome. Where is the King's Room? Um, it's a separated room, but it's inside the big, um, the big room that has all the live games. It's just separated. Gotcha. Gotcha. Awesome. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter. Join the Greatness Village community. Book a coaching session or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.